This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. In this week's column, Duncan Garner looks at the New Zealand's construction sector as a bellwether for recession layoffs. Duncan, what have you heard? Uh, I've spent a bit of time with um, the building industry in the last um, 48 hours, and right from the get-go, these guys are saying that they the pipeline's ended. The pipeline of workers ended. They had that pipeline, and there's nothing after that. They're laying off workers. Um, a number of builders at the um, House of the Year um, awards evening in um, Tauranga on Friday night said the same thing. A dozen workers here, six over here, 12 over there. Does anyone know we can place them somewhere? They'll, go, they'll end up going to Australia. Um, these guys are out of are going to be out of work in the next few weeks. The pipeline is finished. There was no there's no repeat work because no, no one was ordering um, new buildings, new builds at the start of the year because interest rates were going higher and going higher. So the message was there, so it's just come to a complete standstill. We're talking thousands of construction workers that could be facing um, losing their jobs or heading heading overseas or both. Um, that's that's the that's the guts of a of a recession there. That's jobs. Until now, we've largely had a strange recession where we haven't lost jobs, three point four percent unemployment. But now, this is when it starts to bite. Oh, I think it's quite concerning. And construction usually is the first to go. Those are the first jobs to go, and then it sort of flows on to the rest of the uh, economy. Yeah, radio jobs are first to go. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, you know, advertising dries up as well. So, but um, they can track the um, construction industry quite easy because you look at. Uh, permits at the start of the year. So the building permits and resource consents were about 30% down across not only commercial but also residential. Residential a bit lower, about 22%, but still still much lower. And those are jobs. And they equate to jobs because that means they're not building those those sites. Um, so they've known this for some time. It's, of course it hurts when it happens because there's no, there's no plan B. You can't build something that's not been ordered. Um, so this is this is this is what really matters. I know there's discussions about crime and Kitty Allen and all that sort of window dressing stuff, which is very serious and makes them look like a ragtag bunch. But this is jobs and families, and this is the the guy who brings home the 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 um, the income uh, into the into the family. If it's a one income earning family, if it's a two income earning family, then it's still vital. So these are well paid jobs. Mm. These are some. Sometimes these guys are in their first jobs, and they'll be laid off. Mm. Um, will they ever come back to New Zealand? Do we have a plan off the back of it to actually go out there now and say, okay, right, what are we going to do? Are we going to train more builders now because we're about to lose a whole heap of them? Mm. So it sort of comes down to also immigration. A lot of these builders have been brought over from other countries mm. on visas to help out with this building pipeline that we've had. What's happening to them? Are they they'll, going? They'll go. They'll go, they'll go. Uh, workers from right across different countries: Canada, South Africa, the Philippines, um, um, Britain. You know, they come from all over the show. They come here for a specific job. Then they might meet someone. They might stay. They might make New Zealand their home. But if there's work here, they go. If there's work not here, then then they go. So these will be some of the first guys laid off. You'll see the exodus. You're starting to, You're hearing it. You're seeing it. The numbers are starting to fall. Mm-hmm. The last few years, the average Joe hasn't been able to get a build around to do anything <laughs> on their house. You're not kidding. Um, you know, so in some ways, is this just a rebalancing? Um, look, it is cyclical, and of course, probably property market cyclical too. But the problem with it is, is that you couldn't get a builder. You're right. You, you would ring them, and they wouldn't ring you back. Now they're waiting by the phone. Except we're not ringing. Um, we need to somehow rather have boom bust. There somehow needs to be a line across it so it's a bit smoother. And in the boom, we plan for the bust. And we didn't do that very well in 2010 when suddenly there was a bust and we didn't build houses off the back of that. We didn't train builders. 
we've learned we should be learning from the past and training builders for the next um, two years we should train thousands of them get, getting ready for what will happen is a, another mm-hmm. boom but this is quite concerning and this is something the government won't talk about um this is something the industry's done to talk about so it'll it'll seep through into parliament and there's a lot next few weeks you watch mm. Last week, some unemployment figures came out, and they were fairly low. Mm. Do you think everything's just going to hit them over the next few months? Yeah, I think so. And this is like recession mark two. So we've had the early part of the recession, which is a cost of living crisis. Um, you've seen that. Not not so much an income crisis because people are still in jobs. Imagine how the cost of living looks when you don't have a job. You know, cost of living has been tough enough um, with jobs. Imagine if you laid off, uh, what that's going to look like. So uh, this is the this is the second part of the recession, I think. And this could be this could be you know we could have to cut this out for another eighteen months. Um, I mean, who's going to put a time on it? But this is quite serious. This is a structural part of the economy. This is something that we can plan for because we've seen the numbers. So what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. What's, the, what's the government got planned? Or are they mm. too distracted? Mm. doesn't look good um, going into an election if we're in, in recession and seeing huge numbers of people being laid off, does it? It'll be bad timing for Labour. Uh, but I think their, their, um, their goose is cooked with um, Kitty Allen and with, um, with that double murder last week. Uh, soft on crime approach, the whole thing, you know, that's, that's in people's, um, people's front of mind. And then, of course, Kitty Allen's meltdown. That's another minister gone. What's that, the fourth or fifth minister under Hipkins? The guy can't get a break, can he? He almost could call a snap election, I suppose, but he won't because that would look really panicked. But um, this is the real stuff that counts. This is the stuff that will hurt for a long time because it's jobs that maybe families have to relocate, um, retrain, go to another industry. But um, you watch these numbers will start to pile up in the coming months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Duncan, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Grant Robertson raised much ire ahead of the Women's Football World Cup when he told New Zealanders to lift their game in regards to apparently sluggish ticket sales. But that ignores a number of other realities. Martin Devlin writes in Playing the Ball this week. Well, Martin, about 320,000 of 900,000 allocated tickets have been sold across New Zealand so far. What do you what do you think about that? Is that a pretty solid response from the New Zealand public to this, you know, massive international sporting event? Yeah, I think it is an amazing response. And when you do that intro like that, my first reaction as soon as you said that was, Grant, perhaps you'd like to go around your cabinet room and just remind all your ministers of their responsibilities and the positions that they hold after what the news broke today of Kerry Allen. But you know. I think that that amount of tickets is actually an incredible amount of tickets sold. You know, when you're thinking about New Zealand and you're thinking about our population, you know, 300, it's actually up to about 350,000 now. Okay, so the way it's, you know, there was a full house for the football firms on Thursday night against Norway, massive crowd at Eden Park. So you take that crowd away, 40 something thousand, and you're left with an on average about 10,000 per game. Now, you know, let's just put some perspective on this. I think that because the football firms won that game, Nicholas, that they'll probably sell out all their games mm. now. So that's going to raise, mm. you know, the type of tickets. But you're talking about an average of 10,000 per game. Now, these are for sporting matches not involving New Zealand. My young son, youngest son, sorry, um, went to um, Forsyth Bar in Dunedin on Saturday to watch the Philippines play Switzerland with his mates. This is a game of women's soccer um, not involving New Zealand. And 10,000 people turned up. Now, that to me is a hell of an audience. The Phoenix men get an average crowd of six to 7,000 in Wellington to watch their games. This this team's been in existence playing professional A-League football for over, what, 13 or 14 years now? And mm. that's all they get. You know, if you talk about the 2011 Rugby World Cup, for example, and look at what potentially in sporting matters could actually get 
you know, we had 900,000 tickets available for sale for this FIFA Women's World Cup. Okay, well, the All Blacks played seven matches in New Zealand. All of them were sellouts. Just extrapolate the figures as, you know, as I go. You know, then you've got all of the pool matches. Then you've got the quarterfinals, the semifinals. We sold well over a million tickets for that. But that's our national game with mm. a team that's expected to win these tournaments. Mm. You know, the football ferns had no form at all to speak of going into that Norway game. And in actual fact, their form had been disastrous for a good 12 months. So, you know, you've got a sport which isn't our national game. You've got a whole lot of teams and players here that, you know, unless you're a real numpty, and I do sport for a job, but I don't know most of these players. I've got to be honest about it. I've got to look them up and do some research on that. And so you're asking people to go along to something that they're not familiar with, pay good money in these economic climbs and, and times, which the cost of living we all know is squeezing us all. And so I think, look at it from, I'd reverse it and look at it from the other way and go, celebrate New Zealand, 350,000 people have bought tickets to something. That's amazing to me. Mm, mm. You know, you sort of touched on it around the cost of living. You sort of think that's maybe why... You know, we say 900,000 tickets available, 300, about 320,000 sold so far. Uh, you cite that as maybe a potential reason that's maybe stopping people from going to games. Oh, it's a huge reason. Look, it's a huge reason. Spending money on things like tickets to sport matches is your entertainment budget, okay? Now, you yeah. ask yourself at the moment, you know, petrol went up 29 cents a litre. It costs five bucks for a capsicum at the supermarket. Inflation just depends on who you believe is between 5.2 and 6.8 or something percent. You know, you're talking about money that once you've paid all your bills, mortgage rates are going up, everything that you have to pay, this is what you get left at the end of the week to play with. Mm. That's the money that you have available. And then you have to make entertainment decisions based on that. Do I go out to quiz night? Do I go to the pub with my mates? Do I take my partner out for dinner? Do I go see a movie? Do I go see a women's football match? That all comes in this huge big pot of how do I spend my own leisure money? You can't keep screaming and yelling at people and tell them that they have to do things as adults. You do that to us as adults, we're going to do the absolute opposite. Mm. So I think, you know, for the, you know, the sports minister, I mean, what kind of title is that for a government? But anyway, for Grant Robertson, who never pays for anything in his life and gets ministerial limousines there and back and gets wine and dine in a corporate box, you're not paying, mate. Mm. You're asking us to pay and chiding us for not paying. You're not paying. I just think it's a, I just sort of is a bit arrogant and uncaring of him, to be perfectly honest. Whereas in actual fact, I think New Zealand is supporting this event big time. And when you get Denmark playing Portugal or whatever, um, and 10,000 people turn up to that football game, I think that is something quite extraordinary. I really do. Mm. Do you think that ticket sales are going to pick up as this tournament sort of progresses yeah, on? I do. Yeah, I do. And I think because of the football ferns, you know, um, winning that first match in front of a packed house, it's like the Women's Rugby World Cup last year. That mm. was a slow burner that gradually built momentum. Mm. Now, again, it's our national game. We had a team that had a really good chance of winning. Again, perhaps not went in as favourites, but they had a really good chance of winning. Um, but there was only like two or three games that sold out. There was the two semi-finals in the final. The total ticket sales for that World Cup, a rugby World Cup, was well under two hundred thousand. So again, put that in perspective with the three hundred fifty thousand that's been sold for this, and you've got to celebrate it. I see you note that in Australia, about a million was it about a million tickets there that have been sold so far. Are there yeah. any comparisons there between sort of the response well, that we've had the, and what we're basic, seeing here? Just do the basic, just do the basic population comparison. They've yeah. got twenty six million people. They've sold a million. We've got five and a half million people. We've sold three hundred and fifty thousand. I yeah. think per capita it works out that we've actually sold more. Mm. But a million sounds a bit better than three hundred and fifty thousand, doesn't it? Mm. Plus, they've also got a team there, Matildas, who are a, quite a good side. And we're fancied to go quite deep into this tournament. Mm. 
but as but as as it progresses, look, the Ferns have got a game against the Philippines on Tuesday. We should win this game. Mm. In that case, we're into the knockout stage, which will get another massive crowd at Eden Park. You would expect. And these things, as I say, they gather their own momentum and they have their own life. And yeah, look, if we get anywhere near half a million sales for this tournament, I think that'd be amazing. Absolutely amazing. Do you think Ryan Robertson would ever acknowledge that? Call it amazing. Well, I don't know. I mean, have you have you heard any minister of this government ever acknowledging, even when they drunk drive, crash into a parked car, that it's their fault? It's never their fault. You know, somebody's mentally ill, aren't they? Which yeah. is insulting to all of us who suffer from mental illness. No, I don't think he'll ever he'll ever actually step back and say, hey, well done, New Zealand. And which I think is a big mistake from him in election year, because I think people in New Zealand are supporting this event. And that's why I think it's a bit rich of him to turn around and actually tell people to raise their game. Perhaps that comment may come back to haunt him when people get a chance to vote about whether or not he has been raising his for the last six years in October. Well, Martin, look, I think that's probably a great place to leave. But look, thank you for the column, an interesting read, and uh, thank look you, to speaking to you again sometime soon. Good luck to the ferns. NVR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nvr.co.nz. Is the St James Theatre restoration a case of labour digging down the back of the sofa to find cash for treats? Maria Slade asks in this week's Flipside. What's the government actually announced about St James in the first place? So on Saturday, um, Arts Minister Carmel Cipollone announced that the government government's found $15 million to match um, the same amount that Auckland Council has long put up actually for the restoration of the St James. And the announcement seems to have come out of nowhere because they were steadfastly saying that you know there was no money, just mm. basically no money this time last year, no sign of any cash. So it seems like a, a, a U-turn really. Um, yeah, so it's left us all wondering. Because you wrote a piece, what, about a year ago, was it, bemoaning the fact That's that... right, exactly. And I went to Kerry Allen's office at the time. She was Associate Arts Minister, and she came back and just said, no, nope, we might be able to get a half a million out of a you know some fund here sort of thing, but that's it. Now, all of a sudden, Carmel Cipollone's found money from this thing called the Emerging Priorities Fund. Have you ever heard What's of that, that? Hamish? No, I have not. So, yeah, this is where the money's coming from. What yeah, is it? Yeah, so I made some inquiries. This is a discretionary fund that the Prime okay. Minister has that can be used for supposedly urgent uh, matters. And I had a look at sort of what else it might have been spent on lately, and it wasn't really clear. It's not like there's a, there's a list anywhere. But I found a couple of initiatives. One was a um, million dollars put towards a fund in 2019 following the apology to um, gay men who had been um, criminalised prior to de- decriminalisation in 1986. And so it's, it's a sort of a support fund for initiatives supporting that community. And that came out of the Emerging Priorities Fund. And there's been right. a couple of other little bits and pieces. But $15 million is quite a chunk. Yeah. And um, so all of a sudden this money has been found. And you've got to say to yourself, well, we're two months old out from a general election. This theatre's been derelict for about six years, six or seven years, or in fact more, but you know, nothing's happened there for about six or seven years. Why all of a sudden now? Could you argue, I mean, sort of reasonably complicated history and background to this, could you argue that it's just taken a little while to, to find a solution, to, to figure out how best to do this? There are factors, and, mm. and in fact it's, it emerges that uh, former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern had actually signed off on this money from the Emerging Priorities Fund before she left in January. So it was kind of in the pipeline, and one of the, um, um, I guess, complicating factors is that the idea had been to restore the James, St James as part of a wider project they were going to build in a 
apartment tower there. And the two projects were inextricably linked. Now that fell apart, as I say, about six or seven years ago, but the resource consent still covered both projects. And the owner, Steve Bilby, says, well, that created a risk for the government. So they needed to split those two projects. And just before Christmas, they managed to get a new resource consent that did that. Mm. So he's saying, look, it wasn't really a case of them not finding the money. Um, it was just a bit complicated. But you still say to yourself, well, why is this suddenly so urgent? Uh, the St James had been considered as a shovel-ready project following the, the, the COVID pandemic, you know, when the government was looking for ways to stimulate the construction sector. And Shane Jones, who was infrastructure at the minister at the time, said, no, nope, no, nope, that's not a priority. So, look, why all of a sudden, after all these years, is it, is it a priority? Yeah, so you're not buying the line, basically. No, I, I just feel that, um, you know... It, Auckland Central, you have to look at it. It's held by Chloe Swarbrick, the Green MP at the moment. She's very popular. Mm. She won it uh, with a you know a majority of a thousand at the last election. She took it from Nikki Kay. Prior to that, it had been a strongly held centre-left seat. And I would say it's a glittering prize for Labour if they can win that back. And making a sort of key project like this happen is bound to curry favour with voters. So, OK, you could say it was kind of in the pipeline, but... The timing to me just sounds a bit like digging down the back of the sofa to find a few Don't coins. Don't be so cynical, Maria. <laughs> <laughs> Maria, thanks for your time. Thank you. In this month's column from Barry Souter, he writes that Maori participation in the aquaculture industry is young and growing, and if they want to contribute and participate in export targets, they need to understand where the best bang for buck can be had. Barry, can you tell us a bit more? I, uh, in hindsight, I, I think that might be a, an oversimplification on my part. Um, uh, I think there's a huge respect, really, for the plans that are um, uh, underway by particularly the companies that I gave a shout out to. It's pretty sophisticated business, um, these things. You know, you're talking north of, um, in some instances, you know, more than 50 million starters um the process is highly expensive and very complex so um it, it, but what that means is really what that that really leads to is a fine eye for uh, technology so looking for where um, savings can be had in the setup and uh, operations and um even even go to market um where really a, a, a plea for people to really understand well uh, where technology could make that um, make those savings and um, um, and productivity and uh, also um, access mm-hmm. what sort of technological developments are you seeing in this space um, well there's, there's a wide range and they they go right across the entire value chain. So when we talk about supply all the way to customer, for instance, down at the customer end, there's uh, um, if you if if you if you want to sort of really make money, it's in the uh, ownership of your own brand and having that brand uh, marketed uh, in overseas markets. So to command that, that's pretty significant, and most people would go through distributors and you know somewhat white label. But um, uh, at the customer engagement end, it's, it's about telling um, a really authentic story that builds an engagement with the customer in market and um, enables them to 
to some extent join tribes, um, you know, tribes of of people who are passionate about uh, the particular uh, offering that you're making. And generally, those are going to be partly the indigenous story and partly sustainability. Yes, you're right that the the appetite from mainstream companies to grow in this space is strong and that Māori are the natural partners because of their stance on sustainability. Do you expect to see a lot more tie-ups in this space in future? So so the way the uh, settlement process worked is that those uh, guarantees around um, the uh, uh, assets and the share of those industries, for instance, like agriculture, um, have meant that the um, uh, opportunity has been coordinated through organisations like Te, Te Uhukai Moana um, and for the distribution. So what that means is Māori is are seen, because it's uh, it's uh, aggregated the uh, resources to some extent on its way through to the distribution to individual iwi and that sort of thing. That's enabled a um, a scaling by Māori as an entity who then engage with uh, mainstream uh, companies um, in New Zealand. So, so the engagement with Māori is... Uh, enabled by the fact that uh, the Māori um, resources through the settlement process have been uh, coordinated and therefore to some extent aggregated. The organisations like Ōhukai Moana have been around for some decades now and so they're respected uh, as potential partners and players uh, in the sector. And then when you look at the fishing sector where Māori own more than a third of the assets, um, and then they're guaranteed 20% in agriculture. Um, and that special uh, relationship in terms of their ability to positively influence the resource consenting process uh, makes them very easily um, a, a partner that you would want to, um, as a mainstream business, on your side. Mm-hmm. And in your column, you, you gave a couple of shout outs. Um, what exciting developments are there out there? Well, the first shout out went to Fana Apanui, and uh, yeah, very yeah, they punch well above their weight. Um, they're a tribe that's um, uh, small um, population-wise, and uh, they're pretty remote. They live right up on the um, Plenty side of the East Cape, um, and what they're doing with muscle spat is uh, impressive, and when you put sit that in the context of all the other economic uh, um, projects that they have on uh, in their tribe, um, as well as the the other uh, positive um, cultural and educational um, projects that are going on in their tribe, it's it's quite remarkable. In fact, there's a small tribe they probably stand out as an example to the bigger ones. Um, and uh, for instance, you know they. Their, te- their Kapaka team, which won the Matatini this year, uh, was the highlight on the Prime Minister's trip through China. Great. Um, Barry, thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.